this Christmas season, it proved to be pretty difficult. And the reason is, is like all of you, uh, as I was growing up and as I went to church and everything like that, I feel like every single angle of the Christmas story uh, has been shared. And so it's difficult to bring new light to that. If you've been at church for any, any matter of time, you know the Christmas story. You know the main characters. Nothing up here probably was new to you this morning, um, except that kid in that red sweater, man. And those sleeping shepherds, too. <laughs> Give me a break. But you know the Christmas story. And if you didn't grow up going to church, you probably were here, and if not here, some other congregation on Christmas Eve. And, and you heard a pastor like me share the story of Jesus like we're going to be walking through uh, this December. And if you weren't here on Christmas Eve growing up, then you at least probably watched Charlie Brown's Christmas story, right? And you heard Linus's monologue at the end about the true meaning of Christmas. Yeah. Linus, pastor to America. Um, but what we've decided to do this Christmas season is we're going we're gonna to focus on some individual characters. We're going to focus on some stories that we want to dive a bit deeper into so we can understand the characters a bit more. Uh, and, I, and I thought on the heels of our kiddos being super cute and doing the songs and, and all of those things, I thought on the heels of those we were going to introduce the, the best character in the Christmas story, um, which is the villain, King Herod. Uh, that was a joke for those of you who are like, what? He thinks he's the best character? He's not. <laughs> he's King Herod. That's, that's called sarcasm, guys. Um, anyway. But we're going to be focusing on the villain of the story uh, this morning, King Herod. And, and we're not going to be here long. And so just, just bear with me. You guys are like, look, I came for what I wanted to come for. Why won't you let me leave? We trapped you and you're stuck here. And if you try to walk out, we're going to shame you. Um, <laughs> but... Um, the reality is, though, that, that there's this beautiful Christmas narrative that we all love to talk about, we all love to share and enjoy and celebrate, but it has a very, very dark side to this story, and we need to understand that dark side so we can fully grasp the magnitude of what some of our other characters in the story are going through. So largely, we're going to look at this morning uh, the antagonist of the story. Now, for those of you who, who English class has been a, a, a very far removed from from you there's there's two there's two main characters in a story there's a protagonist who is the the main character in the story uh, and then opposite of him is the antagonist. It's the, uh, the opposing force of that character in the story. So we're going to be focusing on the antagonist this weekend. But, but any good story has to have both of those things. You have to. Now th think about it, okay? I'm going to test some of your pop culture knowledge right now. Okay, so I'm going to share a protagonist with you, and I want you to share back with me the antagonist, okay? Most of these are pretty low-hanging fruit if you don't know them. Um, sorry. Um, so, so a protagonist would be Luke Skywalker. The antagonist would be... Okay, good. Yes, very good. The nerds in here just perked up. They're like, Yes! Star Wars and Sunday morning. Um, okay, protagonist would be Batman. Antagonist would be... Okay, there's a skew of answers. The, the nerds in the room spoke up again. It's not just Joker. Um, your, your, your Disneyites in here. Protagonist would be Simba. Antagonist is... Okay, there's more Disney folks over here. Okay, I can hear it. Uh, protagonist, Aladdin. Antagonist... Okay, yeah, you guys had to reach back a little bit for that one, okay? 
And then protagonist, Dorothy, antagonist. Okay, good. Some of you were like, Dorothy who? What's her last name? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) But our heroes in the Christmas story, they have an antagonist. They have an opposing force against them. We have an incredible one in the character of King Herod that we see. King Herod doesn't fit the Christmas story. The horrifying sequence of events in Matthew's gospel doesn't feel like it actually fits in that story. The most difficult part to cast in this Christmas pageant would have been King Herod, right? Because no kid wants to come home and say, hey, I'm the bad guy in the story, mom and dad. Real excited about my super dark monologue that I have to give about killing babies at some point, right? Like that's what would have been asked of him should we have included King Herod this morning. There's no glow-in-the-dark King Herods that you can buy at Walmart that light up and people put on their lawn. It doesn't happen because we don't talk about King Herod in the midst of the Christmas story. No Christmas card this year is going to have the, mer- the verse from Matthew on the front that says, a voice was heard in Ramah wailing in loud lamentation. That's not what we think of when we think of the Christmas story. This part of the story may not seem to fit, but we need to hear it. Because like a lot of stories, we have to hear the whole story or we're going to get the story wrong. So we're going to start here. Every true story admits that even in the midst of blinking decorations and flickering candles, darkness threatens the night. Ignoring the darkness is ultimately ignoring reality. Matthew says that Christmas came in the, king, in, in the days of King Herod. We have a slide right here. It should be Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So to give you a frame of reference, King Herod largely, if we were to equate him to somebody who some of us are relatively familiar with, uh, it would have been someone like Joseph Stalin. He executed his favorite wife, his brother-in-law, and three of his sons because he thought that they wanted his crown. Everything that he did revolved around him retaining power. We usually imagine angels speaking in soft, reassuring tones as they're talking to Joseph, telling him to wake up. Hey, wake up, buddy. It's time to go, time to leave. But the reality is this, this angel in Joseph's dream didn't mince words. It says in, in Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 15, it says, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up. He said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod's gonna search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. There is an urgency behind this. It's a wake up, hurry, run. And they escaped to Egypt. They were far from home, but the the baby was safe. That being said, tragically, regardless of, of the Christ child, Jesus Christ, who was born, not everyone was safe. Herod's order was the death of every boy in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, every single one. Matthew can't find words terrifying enough to be able to write them down. So what he does is he borrows words from the prophet Jeremiah in Matthew 2.18. It says, a voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because there are no more. This is a dark, dark Scene. The first Christmas with soldiers with swords in the streets, mothers clutching their babies, hiding in the closet. 
trying not to breathe too loudly, begging their infants not to cry. And there aren't many questions more impossible to answer than why couldn't the angel have warned them also? Even the birth of the new king didn't stop the suffering that was going on. And it's not surprising then that we skip this part of the story. It's easy to understand why there's, there's no carols about the slaughter of innocence. And perhaps there should be because we need to understand that Christmas is God's response to our sorrows. And that's your first blank for the morning. Christmas is God's response to our sorrows. Christmas is our deliverance from our fallen nature. In Genesis 3, Genesis chapter 3, and we're not going to read it, but we have the fall of man, Adam and Eve, the fruit, all of that stuff, man, sin, everything like that. Most of us are familiar with that story as well. God told Adam and Eve not to eat from one tree in the garden, yet they couldn't help themselves as Satan deceived them. Sin entered into the world. And because of that, all humanity has what we call in the church a sin nature. We're going to talk theology for a few minutes. So we're going we're gonna to go to the classroom for a few minutes, and then we're going to get right back into church, okay? You guys good with that? You okay with that? You're going to learn some new words. Use them over lunch. You won't be able to, but try. Okay, so... Because of that, all, 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 all sin nature, all humans have a sin nature. The theological term found here is the idea of total depravity, total depravity. Total depravity is the understanding that human nature is thoroughly corrupt and sinful as a result of the fall. Every single human is corrupt. Every single human is sinful as a result of the fall. So essentially man is inherently evil. From the time that little precious baby comes out of the womb. And some of you moms are out there like, uh-uh, they weren't evil until they were two. <laughs> but <laughs> scripture tells us otherwise. And that, that even as they come out of their mama, they are sinners. Some people have a hard time with that. We're found sinful though for two reasons. And these two reasons kind of back up this idea of total depravity. The first word, there are two more theological concepts. The, third, the first word is the idea that sin is inherited, inherited sin. That means that all human beings have inherited a sinful nature through Adam's original act of disobedience. So when Adam ate of the fruit, when Eve ate of the fruit, every single person to follow them had an inherited sin nature. It tells us in Romans 5, 12 to 14, therefore... Just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. 13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin's not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking his command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. We've all received a fallen nature. All of us have an inherited sin. And in addition to receiving a fallen nature, all people who came after Adam have been credited with the guilt of Adam's sin. So here's your other theological word. It's imputed sin, imputed sin. So we have two types of sin, sin natures. We have an inherited sin and we have imputed sin. Imputed sin is the one that I have a hard time with because I know I tend to sin mostly because of my human nature. No, I tend to sin because of my human, not mostly, because of my human nature. The imputed sin is Adam's guilt attributed to, uh, to, to or credited to us. I was trying to make that say our. 
Adam's guilt attributed to or credited to us because of what Adam did and what Eve did in the garden. We are held guilty because of that sin that is imputed upon us. Anybody grow up with siblings in here? Anybody have a uh, punishment that was imputed upon you? Yeah, I did. Um, we had, at the time, we had Formica countertops. And uh, there's a seam, you know, at the elbow of the Formica countertop. And so someone in my family, bear in mind I had one sibling, someone in my family took a steak knife to that seam and dragged it all the way across. Now, I knew I was innocent. And I knew I was innocent. <laughs> and so I remember having a conversation, a, a, a conversation with my mom, uh, who is here today. I'm confessing innocence, mom. Um, and she just, she, who did it? She had no evidence. She had no proof. I wasn't, there was, she wasn't dusting for fingerprints on the steak knife that had been dragged across. I mean, she may have wanted to, but she couldn't, obviously. And so I remember her asking both my brother and I, who did this? And both of I mean, I should say both of us lied. I didn't lie. I was telling the truth. It's like, I did not do it. And then my brother was like, yeah, I didn't do it either. Like, it wasn't dad. Like, we know someone in this home did it. And our dog was too short to get on the countertop. So she was out. But I remember being punished. Both of us got punished for that sin. Okay. Guilt was attributed to me for something that I didn't necessarily do. Okay. And that's the only instance I could come up with, with that happening. So before you all give my mom a bad rap, she did an incredible job. Okay. I mean, did you see her grandkids singing earlier on the stage right here? So good. So good. Okay. But that's imputed sin. Okay. Romans 5.18. It says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, one sin, one trespass, Adam's sin in the garden is now attributed to all of us as guilt. Adam's sin was imputed to all of his descendants and they are to be dealt with as guilty. It doesn't mean they're personally guilty of Adam's sin though, only that his sin was credited to their account. And thus every single person participates in the guilt and in the penalty of that original sin, that original transgression. Romans 3.23 says it's super clear. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you didn't pay attention to the rest of the classroom moment, just pay attention to Romans 3.23. The idea of imputed sin and the idea of inherited sin fall under that alone. That every single one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is incredibly clear about that. Romans, the book of Romans is incredibly clear about that, that all of us are guilty. None of us are good on our own accord. And we have to understand that in order to get back to the understanding of the evilness of Herod and the hope that was being offered that night in Bethlehem. Because the penalty for sin is death. We are subject to spiritual death. We're subject to separation from God in this present life due to the idea of imputed sin. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, it's not on the screen, but it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you allowed or when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So the reality is, is if we persist in this state of separation from God, the result is second death. 
which is eternal in nature, and it's subject to hell. The guilt of Adam's sin was directly charged or imputed to the whole human family so that all people are now subject to death. And because of that, we need to remember the hope that comes with Christmas. We need to remember the hope that comes with Christmas because we can talk about the darkness and we, we have to, to frame this entire story. But we have to remember the hope that comes with Christmas because the part of this story that we're used to leaving out, the sadness, the suffering, the death is most important. It's the hard part of it that explains why this child is a holy child. And when we remember the story, we need to remember all of the story that God comes to the worst places and the most painful circumstances to share in our suffering, to care for us in the midst of tragedy. Christ has come to bear our sorrows. We haven't been left alone. This season uh, is, is, is the promise that God's joy is deeper than our sadness. God's joy is deeper than our sadness, that ultimately life is more powerful than death and the light shines even in the darkness as we see a deranged king terrified of an infant child so much so he's willing to put all the babies in his kingdom to death in order to keep his seat on his earthly throne. This is in stark contrast to the God whom we serve. If you're just checking us out today because of Christmas time and the kids' performance, again, we're excited that you're here, but I don't want you to leave without knowing that unlike King Herod, Jesus, the Son of God, left his throne, willingly left his seat at the right hand of God, willingly set aside the privileges of deity in order to save the entire world. Jesus willingly stepped down into an incredibly dark world in order for us to be saved forever. Which is why Christmas is a light of hope coming to banish darkness forever. But remember, as, as you're putting the final touches on your Christmas decorations this week, that, that nativity scene is beautiful as it is on your mantle. Does anybody have a, a nativity scene that you weren't allowed to touch ever? Yeah, I did. I still have one. But as beautiful as that thing is, as beautiful it is and, and, and as beautiful it is and cause for celebration, not because there's this cute baby and some shepherds and some really funny wise men running around, but because it was God stepping into darkness on our behalf to save humanity forever. So what? That's what I always try to get to. If you're new with us, I always try to get to, what does this mean today? Because I don't want to be cliche and say, just remember Jesus is the reason for the season. You'll hear that enough. I want to remind you that this Christmas time, the majority of humanity is celebrating a holiday with empty traditions that ultimately don't matter. Our responsibility is to align ourselves to Christ and to Christ crucified. Which is why today we get to go to the table of the Lord. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask um, Brian if you want to bring the table up. And Debbie is going to be uh, playing some music behind us. Um, for those of you who, who maybe aren't a part of church or anything like that, uh, every, the, the first Sunday of every single month here at FB Hanford, um, we do communion. And uh, our communion largely is to memorialize Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. 
is that as, as we take the bread and as we take the cup, we remember of Christ's sacrifice, and it calls us back to what we think about in the upper room. The upper room was the night before Christ was crucified. He was surrounded by his disciples, and those disciples Jesus shared with them and asked them to do this in remembrance of him. And so we're going to go to the table of the Lord, and I appreciate our guys coming, and we have a lot of moving parts today because of the Christmas story, but... Um, Ultimately, as we go to the table, we want to remind you that going to the table of the Lord is, is for anyone who has placed their faith in Christ. I know there's a lot of you who are from other churches and that sort of thing. You don't have to be a member of our church in order to partake. You just have to be a member of, uh, of the fellowship of believers, member of the family of God. And so uh, normally what I do is I close our services with what we call the ABCs, the ability to admit, believe, and choose to follow Jesus. So um, I'm going to just ask that you bow with me, bow your heads. We're going to pray. Father, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful for your son. We're thankful for cute Christmas programs and uh, kids who are just beginning to understand things that we're still wrestling with on a regular basis. And God, if there are people in here today who do not yet know you, Father, I pray, pray just in the quietness of their heart that they would A, admit that they're a sinner in need of a savior. Just like we talked about the idea of Herod and the darkness and the sin nature that all of us have wrapped up inside of us. Romans tells us that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I pray, Lord, that we would just recognize that and admit, yep, I am a sinner. And that be that we would, we would believe that because of our sin nature, because of our separation from you, that you sent your son, your son willingly stepped out of deity, stepped down from the privileges of deity, rather, Father, to, to go to the cross on our behalf so we could be reconciled to, to you forever. And not only did he go to the cross, but he beat the cross, he conquered the grave, and he rose again three days later. God, that we would believe that and see that we would choose to follow you every single day. God, I pray that that would be true of all of us, that we would choose to follow you every single day. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.